Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staking Mondays. Staking Mondays is a weekly show to share knowledge from key staking industry leaders with our community. Of course, this is all powered by stakingrewards.com. At Staking Rewards, we are helping investors to navigate the landscape of yield generating digital assets, helping them find the best opportunities to earn interest on crypto. My name is Ken, and I'm very glad to be here and extremely excited to welcome today's guest. Anthony Sassano is an independent Ethereum educator, angel investor, and advisor. He's the founder of The Daily Way, a daily newsletter and daily video recap of the entire Ethereum ecosystem. He is also the co-founder of ETHUB, which provides research and resources to learn more about Ethereum. So everyone put your hands together and welcome Anthony. Anthony. Hey, Ken. So, hey, welcome, welcome. So just to start you off here, a little icebreaker for you. So which, which crypto project first spiked your interest outside of Ethereum, outside of BTC, and why was that? Yeah, uh, outside of uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, I think, you know, there were a lot of, uh, I guess, projects during 2017 when I got into Ethereum that were kind of like focused on interoperability back then. It was kind of big theme, a big theme, but I think it was like too early. So you had things like Aeon and Icon, and I think there was a couple others out there. People remember those names from 2017. Pretty much all of them don't really, I mean, they, they're still around. I, I think some of them are still building, but they didn't really take off. And it was just funny how like 2017, you know, interoperability was this big thing, but then during the bear market, it wasn't. And now it's coming back in a big way where everyone's like, oh, you know, we have to do cross-chain this, cross-chain that. So it's funny how that just, that's kind of come full circle since then yeah there's actually like actual products out there for people to use now with interoperability like these bridges that we're seeing uh being developed mm -hmm. across interoperability is is really becoming more of a forefront now um so to hop right into it you're, you're a big ethereum guy right so uh, you do a lot of education around the ethereum ecosystem so our question is going to be tailored all around eth and the eth 2.0 merge coming up uh so just to start you off so how do you feel about this EIP 1556 since it launched? Uh, did you make any interesting observations? Did you mean 1559, the, the burn EIP, right? Sorry, 59. Correct. Yes, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just just so I got that right. Yeah, no, I, I um I think the 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 thing that kind of like probably caught me off guard was with how many people were surprised by how much ETH was being burned once this EIP went live. I think, you know, I had been talking about it for a very long time, along with a bunch of other Ethereum people. You know, the EIP had been around for over two years before it actually got to mainnet. And to see people get kind of get really surprised when we started burning ETH, I was like, wow, okay. I mean, you know, we were saying that this was going to happen because we could see how much uh, revenue was being generated each day by the network. And, you know, if you translate that and did some kind of napkin math, you, could, you can kind of um, figure it out. So that really took me back. But in general, I think it's just been great to see outside of the burning uh, kind of, I guess, like how the um, the fee mechanism is actually working. Like it was, it, its original intention was to basically be there so that uh the users could get better fee estimation and the fees the, the spikes that we saw in fees would actually be smoothed out over time so i think it's achieved that from all the the data i've seen and you know it's only been alive for six or seven weeks uh so maybe we need more data but i think that uh it's achieved its, its original goal and it seems that uh, there's a lot less kind of like, um, you know, uh, transactions that need to be sped up on the network now. Like you used to have to click the speed up button on your MetaMask or something because your transaction got stuck. Uh, that seems to only really happen during kind of like spikes when there's like an NFT drop or something like that these days. Most of the time you can just use the default and get into like the next block or two, which I think is really, really cool. So, yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy with kind of like how it's how it's gone. I mean, there are maybe some tweaks that need to happen sometime in the future around how fast 
the base fee increases uh, during those periods of spikes, but that would be based on like much more data than what we have today. Uh, but other than that, I think it's it's yeah, it's gone really well. Yeah, really interesting that you say users aren't really having to use this speed up functionality anymore. I can remember uh, back just a few months ago before the, the fork there, before the proposal that uh, transactions would get stuck for days at times. And unless you use that speed up button, they would uh, remain stuck there for quite some time. So cool, cool to hear the observations there. Um, so staking is often described as a way to hedge against inflation in crypto networks. How do you feel about that considering Ethereum's inflation may turn negative with this EIP uh, 1559? Yeah, so it's funny when you look at all of the different kind of like staking networks out there today and how they differ from how much rewards they pay out. Uh, Ethereum actually pays out as a, as a kind of like percentage of the total supply, a really small amount. I think it's right now 0.6% as a percentage of the overall supply. But what's being paid to stake is, is, is I think five to 6% right now. Um, it, it kind of goes um, down as more people stake, of course. Whereas a lot of these other networks are paying out, you know, uh, eight, 9% double digits percentages uh, sometimes. And that's across the whole network. That's not just um, to stakers, that's inflating across the whole kind of like, uh, like network there. Um, and it's, it's quite high. So I think that uh, on, on all these other networks, especially the um, the DPoS networks, so the, the delegated proof of stake networks, um, people are pretty much forced to stake or they do get very heavily diluted. Whereas I think with with ETH, um, because the the actual um, extra issuance coming to to you know to the market is very very low, especially once that the merge happens and we get off what mining and we just actually are issuing that that point zero six percent, sorry zero six percent, zero point six percent, or a little bit higher than that depending, um, and then mixed in with the, the fee burn, then yeah, I mean ETH if if the merge had gone through already, ETH would be net deflationary. We would be burning more than we're issuing each year, um, much more than we were issuing each year at this point. So yeah, it's, it's it's funny kind of like comparing the way Ethereum has kind of approached this where uh, with the other networks. And I think that Ethereum is in a really unique place because ETH is used for so much more than just staking. Whereas a lot of these other tokens on these other networks, they don't have their own ecosystem yet. A lot of them where it's really just like a staking token. You, there's no like real DeFi. There's no, it's not being used as money for like NFTs and stuff like that. So I think ETH is in a very unique position where it's got this kind of like beautiful design where even though there's a little bit of inflation, we offset it with the fee burn. And and then people who hold ETH are not getting kind of like massively inflated away over, over time. Uh, and, and we're still issuing new ETH to kind of secure the network as well, which is which is obviously very important. Exactly. And it really is a beautiful monetary design. And uh, in your opinion, what do you think needs to happen for Bitcoiners to appreciate the monetary policy of Ethereum as they do for Bitcoin? Well, first we need to invent a time machine, uh, go back and not change the monetary policy at all over time. I think that's why Bitcoiners don't appreciate it is because they believe that the monetary policy should not change at all. The certainty is what gives it value. And that's what's happened with Bitcoin, right? It's never changed, it's never altered uh, from that kind of like 21 million cap halving every four years. Uh, whereas Ethereum has made multiple changes over time uh, with the, the issuance reductions um, and then also the difficulty bomb, whenever that kicks in, uh, that also reduces issuance uh, for a time and then you also have uh, obviously the merge coming up which is going to radically change the entire issuance kind of schedule there so i, I don't think that the the hardline bitcoiners uh, are ever going to respect ethereum's monetary policy which is fine they just have a different view of things but i, I don't know i i, I kind of don't have that view i think that you got to you got to be more pragmatic about it you can't just say you know something that was set like 11 12 years ago is the design that that should be set in stone for every network i feel like 
for Bitcoin that, you know, if they think it works, it w they think it works, but for Ethereum, definitely not. But I don't think they're going to appreciate uh, the design anytime soon. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to change uh, someone's mind. Who's just dug in from the beginning there. Right. And I just want to welcome mm -hmm. all the people in the chat here that are joining uh, all the ETH DGENs out there. Welcome. Welcome. Um, and we're getting into right now some of the economic design. So Ethereum has a staking economic design that is purposely cho uh, chosen with no limited validators, right? At the same time, it does not support any delegation, uh, which is meant to make as many people as possible to run validator nodes themselves. But at the same time, it pushes a lot of stakers to use staking pools, which may not be the very best for decentralization. So how do you think Ethereum compares to uh, in terms of decentralization to other networks with no limit to the number of validators, but networks that support delegation. Uh, example would be like a Tezos. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so a lot of these other networks, as I mentioned before, have like delegated proof of stake uh, built in where, uh, they, they, you know, basically uh, people are just like delegating their stake or, uh, to these kind of like, a lot of them run on bigger, big super nodes and stuff like that, big validator nodes where they are definitely more centralized than something something like Ethereum. And Ethereum's proof of stake is definitely not dele a delegated design model, as you as you mentioned or anything like that. But as you, as you mentioned as well, there's drawbacks where the users will just opt to basically uh, delegate, but there, technically it's not delegation um, from their own kind of wallet or anything like that. It's delegate. It's it's basically just like um, handing over control of their funds to a centralized service, essentially. So there are some solutions being worked on right now to this, where instead of building it kind of like directly in protocol, you do it like kind of like extra protocol, uh, but, uh, but kind of like leverage the design. So there's one project I know of called Obel Network, which is using what's called secret shared validator technology in order to allow users to basically have a multi-sig for their validator a validating key where they basically delegate to a service, but that service doesn't have, uh, you know, complete control over their, their validator. Um, they can still get slashed. You can still go offline and stuff like that, but the user still retains some, uh, 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 some ownership or, or ownership of their, sorry, of the validated key here, rather than just like completely giving it up. So there are some solutions like that coming online. Um, there are other decentralized solutions like rocket pool that, you know, they announced their mainnet date the other day, I think it's October 6th. Uh, they've still got, I think they've, they've still got a, a, a long way to go till they're like truly decentralized, but it's good to see it coming to mainnet. So there are, there are solutions like that, but and I, and I also heard some kind of things about the, the core researchers and core developers of, of kind of like ETH2 looking at ways to to do native kind of like in protocol delegation, but in such a way that it doesn't encourage people to, I guess, centralize the stake as well. Because that's always the balance at the end of the day. You don't want the stake to be centralized or you want to limit that as much as possible, but, but you also want to make it as easy as possible for people to join these pools but uh but but uh, from a, a safer kind of perspective as well and like these staking services too because 32 ETH, the, uh, the minimum to stake on your own 32 ETH, it's a it's very expensive these days i mean when they designed this it wasn't it was like you know ETH was like 100 200 it was much less expensive than it is today and now it's over like a hundred thousand dollars just to be able to stake on your own so there needs to be more pragmatic kind of i think uh, uh choices made here for sure exactly and who knows what the cost of 32 ETH is going to be even in a few more months here as we get closer to the merge date. So yeah, mm -hmm. it's good that these other solutions like Rocket Pool are being developed and we'll get into that a little bit later here. Um, so, so where would you actually position Ethereum in general as part of the ecosystem of proof of stake networks? I would say that Ethereum pretty much stands on its own in terms of its design. Uh, I think it's the, I personally think it's the best 
staking design uh, out there right now. I think it is definitely, it lends itself to being the most decentralized just from the, the, the way that it's structured, even with those issues that we just discussed, um, simply because it rejects the notion of, of, of being like delegated from the protocol level so that uh, essentially you don't have kind of like these, this cartel cartelization, which um, Vitalik has spoken about a fair bit where he basically says that if in these delegated proof of stake networks, you essentially have a th have something that happens where, especially the ones that, that claim to be more scalable, where they turn into a cartel over time because only a, a select handful of people can run the nodes and then they all kind of band together to be profitable. They're like, okay, well, it's not profitable for, you know, maybe 30 of these nodes to be run. Let's just say that we're running 30, but really it's 10 because there's just like a bunch of us working together to, to be profitable here. So I think that's why uh, a major reason why the um, Ethereum ecosystem has rejected that design is because we believe it's very centralizing. So, you know, the Ethereum proof of stake system is is definitely very unique uh, across the staking system. Not to say the other designs are necessarily bad, but uh, I think, you know, the Ethereum one's been worked on for a very long time. Uh, and there was some core design goals and, and core things that the developers and researchers didn't want to take shortcuts on. And that was a, that was a big one there. So, but there is also the risk, as I mentioned before, that the stake just keeps centralizing, especially with exchanges who make it really easy at the end of the day for people to, to stake because they're like, okay, well, here's a one-click stake button. That's it. There's no like having to set up your validator. There's no having to go through all these complex things. Um, it's not, I wouldn't say it's too hard. I think any, everyone can do it, but it's just much easier if an exchange that you're already using, that you're already using as like a custody provider for your, your funds, to, for you to just press a button, that's it. So it's very, it's kind of hard to compete with that at the end of the day as well. It doesn't matter how easy you make it to stake on your own, it's always gonna be easier for these centralized services. So I think that even though that exists, I think that we should still prioritize making it as easy as possible for people to stake because there are a lot of people who, who do, definitely do care about staking on their own. There are a lot of bigger players as well that may not wanna do it for exchanges. They may wanna uh, stake on, on kind of like their own hardware or at least on hardware that they're renting out themselves rather than going through a third party. Um, and you know, there's people who, who definitely want to, I don't have the 32 ETH uh, minimum, but wanna stake on their own. So they'll do it through like Rocket Pool or something like that, some kind of decentralized staking pool service. Yeah, it, it is tough always fighting the ease of use that, like you're saying, these uh, centralized exchanges provide just these one-click stake buttons. Uh, you're fighting against decentralization at that point. So it, it's a constant battle for all networks, really, in the proof-of-stake ecosystem. Um, mm -hmm. But how do you expect the market for Ethereum staking to change once Ethereum gets merged into ETH 2.0? Uh, now we're considering Rocket Pool and other solutions will go live, too, at that point. Yeah, I, I think it's it's going to be an interesting dynamic to see play out because right now I've actually been surprised by how much kind of like ETH has staked already. Um, what is it, 7.8, 7.9 million ETH or something like that, considering it's, it's kind of like a one-way... One, one yeah, 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 it's like a one-way bridge for a lot of people. But at the same time, there are also solutions already today, like Lido, that get that give you liquidity on your stake. Some of the exchanges will give you liquidity on your stake. So really, I mean, uh, you know, the exchange is taking that risk for you so that you can have this kind of liquidity. And and obviously, they're doing it because they, they're they providing a service that they can get a cut from. Um, so yeah, I mean, but I've still been surprised by how much ETH is staked already. Now, what happens post-merge is that all of the unburned ETH goes to validators now. So that adds to the APY because right now it's 5 to 6% or APR, I should say. Sorry, it's not compounding, but um, it adds to that. And there are some estimations have it as high as like 20%, depending if the, you know how high the fee revenue is. It could be you know, 10, 15, 20% or whatever, but still that's a lot on, on ETH. And, that, and ETH staking is one of the safest ways to earn a yield on your ETH because um, you know, there, there are other ways to do it. I know we're going to discuss that later, but I think that 
in general, ETH staking is definitely one of the safest, if not the safest way to earn a, a yield on your ETH, depending on how you do it as well. I mean, if you do it through third party providers, it's a bit riskier. Um, but, you know, and that's at these levels at like the five to 6% level, like imagine 10% plus uh, on your ETH. It's kind of, it's kind of crazy when you think about that. So I actually think we're going to see a lot more ETH staked, uh, especially as we get closer to the merge, more people clue into this fact that once the merge happens, that, that you know, all the unburned fee revenue is going to be going to the validators as well as MEV too. Like I know that as an ecosystem, we're trying to reduce MEV, but I think that um, until we do, a lot of that will go to, to stakers and validators and stuff like that, the ones that, that kind of capture that because they're obviously the block producers in a, in a merge world. So... Uh, yeah, that, that's kind of like how I'm viewing the, I guess, ETH staked amount and kind of like the um, the returns you can get there. But I also think that once the merge happens and once we, once we kind of don't have this one-way bridge anymore, it's going to be interesting to see what the turnover rate is for stakers. Like how many people actually stake for a very long time, like how many people only stake for a couple months, and, and especially the ones that are staking on their own, and how the how the the kind of dynamics change with the pools. Like, does one exchange have like a majority for six months, and then for some reason, uh, maybe they get maybe that something goes wrong with them. Maybe they go offline for a day or two, and people stop trusting them, and then you know you have like a, a churn there. So that's going to be interesting to see because you can't actually see that right now, obviously, because it's a it's a one way bridge. Um, but I think that's going to be uh, it's going to be uh, good data for the research and developers as well to kind of like maybe uh, tweak some things if they need to. Absolutely. And, and you mentioned uh, there that there's somewhere around, was it six to seven million ETH currently staked? Um, put a hard number on it. What do you think the amount of ETH staked is going to be once we actually merge, let's say a year after the merge takes place? Mm -hmm. A year after, I, I, would, I wouldn't be surprised to see 20 million plus uh, staking, uh, 20 million ETH plus staking. And it's funny because it also maybe depends on on the price of ETH as well. Uh, because, you know, as I said, there's going to be churn, especially as the price goes higher and higher. People are going to be like, wow, the price is really high. Because if you think about it, I mean, the Beacon Chain went live when ETH was about $600. So everyone who has staked on their own, locked up their ETH, they're sitting on already like a 5X at $3,000 in terms of a capital gain. Then imagine if ETH goes much higher than where it is today, uh, you know, leading up to the merge, maybe ETH is like $10,000. I mean, you have these people sitting on kind of like these massive gains and then over time, they're going to want to take some 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 off the table as well. Uh, there's not everyone's like a forever staker and so it can be a lot of money. I mean, 32 ETH at $10,000 is $320,000. That's a, that's a lot of money, right? Especially if you bought at like $100,000, So um, I think it's, yeah, it'd be interesting to see kind of like uh, how that plays out. But I do think that a year after the merge, we can still see 20 million plus ETH stake because there's going to be a lot of people I think interested in uh, you know if they buy their ETH there's if you're not doing anything with your ETH it's kind of like silly you you, you basically better off staking it because if you're just keeping your ETH in your co in cold storage then I wouldn't say you're getting inflated away but you're missing out on some really low risk rewards at the end of the day so you're better off staking it uh, especially uh, like on your own or with a decentralized service than than keeping it in cold storage but if you're using like an exchange to stake or a service provider to stake then you have to consider the extra risk you're taking as well exactly and and really it's up to educators like yourself to help onboard some of these users who are just sitting on uh ethereum in their cold wallet for instance to get them participating in the in the improved stake network there um so what do you think about the potential competition between staking eth and supplying to other yield strategies or lending could this be a potential risk for the network if competing strategies say have a higher or more attractive apr apy so this was a funny question uh, that was actually pondered a lot before the beacon chain went live and people were saying oh you know the the yields that you can get on your eth in DeFi are too high no one's going to stake 
And the people were saying, well, we're not even going to reach the minimum, which is around 524,000 ETH required to kickstart the beacon chain. Well, I mean, we reached the minimum and we, we got more, way more than that. And now we're up to almost 8 million ETH staked. So I, I think that we've already seen proof of the fact that uh, people will stake regardless if there's higher yield somewhere else. Uh, I think that's for a number of reasons. Um, one is because, I mean, exchanges have made it really easy to stake. So people that may not even know what DeFi is, but they're just buying ETH because they've heard about it and they're like, oh, ETH's like this thing. It's like Bitcoin. I better buy it because it's going to go up. And then they just stake it because the exchange encourages them to do so. It just comes up with this nice, nice button and says, hey, earn like 5% on your ETH. And why, who would say no to that, right? Like, especially if you're a newer person. So there's there's that aspect to it. But also, I think a lot of um, lo longer term ETH holders as well have kind of, I guess, uh, for, for them, it's kind of like, well, I want to earn a return on my ETH, but I've seen how many kind of like hacks and exploits happen with smart contracts within DeFi, and uh, I don't want to kind of risk my ETH in that, and the extra yield isn't worth that amount of risk, so I'm going to be risk averse, I'm going to you know preserve my capital, but I still want to earn a return, so I'm going to go with staking, which as I mentioned earlier, I think is probably the least riskiest way to earn a yield on, on your ETH. Uh, especially, um, you know, a, a good yield. I mean, it's it's not a bad yield. Either. It's not like one two percent. It's still five or six percent. And as I said, post merge, it can go as high as twenty percent, depending on fee revenue. Even maybe even higher. It just depends. We don't know for sure. Uh, so I think there's there's kind of like that playing into it as well. And just different people as well, different kind of like uh, tastes uh, at the end of the day. A lot of people just don't want to do DeFi stuff. They just, oh, well, I'm not interested in this stuff. And um, you know, just because it's more risky, just because they just don't understand it. And they're like, okay, well, if I don't understand, I don't understand how it works. I don't understand um, uh, the, the economic risks as well. Because it's not just smart contract risks. There's the risk of, okay, will I get liquidated for some reason? Or if the market moves against me in some other way, will something happen to my funds? Or will I be able to get my funds out uh, when I want to sort of thing? Whereas with staking, it's pretty straightforward what you're getting yourself into at the end of the day and it's not going to change underneath you either there's no kind of like fancy ponzinomics which uh normally you know you normally see in the DeFi ecosystem um and yeah i think there's those are the kind of like the major reasons why you you'll see people continue to stake and have stake at this point especially i mean it's funny because you know, there's just the one-way bridge as well. And before these staking service providers came along like uh, Lido and the exchanges and stuff, we still had, I think, you know, a million, two million ETH staked or, or something like that. So way above the minimum required. And this really showed that there's a lot of people out there in the Ethereum ecosystem who just really wanted to stake their ETH for a very long time. And they're willing to forego potentially higher rewards because they know that the risk is higher there. So they're happy just staking. And, and also, I think, for a lot of uh, longer-term Ethereum community members as well, they just feel like a sense of duty to stake as well because they're like, okay, well, you know, I bought ETH for the reason of like I wanted to stake it one day. Proof of, proof of stake's been a major part of the Ethereum roadmap for a very long time. So why would I not kind of participate in it? And I get to participate as like a validator. I get to, uh, you know, if you're staking on your own, you get to kind of like um, uh, be a part of the decentralization of the network. So, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a, subje a very subjective uh, kind of like uh, view to it as well for a lot of people, I think. Yeah, definitely very interesting uh, how this will evolve over time, especially after that, maybe that duty to to stake kind of wears off and we see what mm -hmm. happens more years down the line. Um, so, so talking about staking derivatives now, what's your take on staking derivatives? Do you think there'll be many successful solutions and are there even different use cases for different types of these derivatives? 
Yeah, so there's an argument that uh, I think uh, Paradigm, who invested uh, a, bi a large sum into Lido, has made, where they basically said the derivative, the staking derivative space is a winner-take-all market because from a liquidity point of view, it makes sense. Because obviously, if you have uh, a, a staking derivative like STE, for example, you want it to be the most liquid uh, uh, staking derivative uh, because so people can enter and exit really really easily over time. And obviously, uh, there's a bunch of other benefits as well, I think, that they, that they mentioned. They have a blog post about this i remember but i i'm not convinced that it's going to be kind of like a a one-man show sort of thing i feel like there's going to be multiple solutions out there and it might be just a power law distribution where maybe 80 percent 90 percent belongs to one of the solutions and then you have like a, a you know a long tail of, of of kind of different solutions out there but I wouldn't like to see just one being the the winner because it's just really bad. Just generally, it's it's monopolistic. It it doesn't um, encourage competition. Uh, it encourages centralization, of course. So I really hope we see more than one. But I mean, at this point, Lido is definitely the the front runner there. They have a, a lot of ETH currently staked, and Rockapool is a bit late to the game. But as I said, they're going live soon, so they're going to be another solution that that kind of like I think gets a lot of ETH because there's a lot of long term Rockapool community members as well that have been waiting for a while. Um, so I think Rocket Pool Lido are probably the front runners, but there's probably going to be other ones out there as well. Um, the exchanges too, but the exchanges are a bit different, I think, where I think Lido wants to decentralize over time. The exchanges won't ever decentralize their stake over time. I mean, by virtue of how they stake, they, they can't. Like, they're, they're, they're definitely not going to not gonna do that. So it's going to be interesting to see how that space evolves. But uh, Lido is definitely the, you know, far and away the front runner right now. But I, I don't think that's because... They're necessarily like a lot better than the, the other solutions. The other solutions just aren't live yet. At the end of the day, like there's just not many options for people just yet. But as they come online, it, they, you know, we might see more people stake there, and then once the merge happens, we may see some churn where people are like, oh well, I only stake with Lido because I, uh, or you know, you can even do it beforehand because you can sell your STETH for ETH and then go stake with someone else if you wanted to, um, so, sort of thing there, or tr trade it for ETH, I should say, sorry. But you you, you know, you may, may see churn out of the, the exchanges as well, or something like a decentralized staking pool. So it'll be interesting to see how that happens too. Yeah, it's really interesting to see how Lido has captured a majority of the derivative market there, uh, being a first mover and they have that first mover advantage. So we'll see how that shakes out as time moves on. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, talking about MEV, you, you mentioned this earlier, this is minor extractable value. Do you think MEV will be a problem for ETH 2.0 after the merge too? And what are the implications of this? Yeah, so I think MEV is just like a, an ecosystem-wide issue, not just with Ethereum, but with a lot of different networks, right? Where we're trying to minimize it as much as possible because there's bad and good MEV. Like good MEV would be something like you need arbitrages to kind of like uh, arbitrage different um, uh, different pairs on different AMMs on chain, for example, like between Uniswap and SushiSwap and, and other kind of like uh, liquidity pools, essentially. So that's something that's considered, I guess, good MEV. But then there's bad MEV like sandwich attacks and like really, uh, really crazy front running stuff and a bunch of other like crazy things that go on there the mev space is actually pretty deep um but i think that uh, that's kind of like orthogonal to i guess the merge merge or not there's going to be mev post merge is going to be mev because i don't think at that point we're going to be have like solved it quote unquote solved it or made it so it's like um that's minimized as possible it's just an ongoing research and development effort where we're trying to get it to the point where um, you know, uh, MEV, uh, the toxic uh, kind of like externalities of MEV are, are as are as minimized as possible. And there's multiple teams working on this, like like Flashbots and, and a few others out there. 
that are providing tools. But I think with the merge, what changes is that, I mean, I think there's two major things that change. Instead of the MEV that are going to the miners, that goes to the validators now, of course. And secondly, um, it's much harder to re do, do deep reorgs on the chain. So there was actually a, a discussion a couple of months ago about MEV leading to instability of the chain where you could actually reorg, um, you know, blocks in proof of work and miners would fight each other to basically front run each other for the MEV, essentially keep reorging the chain. Now in proof of stake, it's, it's possible to do that, but it's much, much harder because there's finality within within the proof of stake network. So if you attempt to do that, if you attempt to reorg, there's a uh, there's um, the um, the economic finality that kicks in, and you'll get slashed, and you'll lose a lot of a lot of ETH doing that. So um, I think that's what that's a major change that happens, and 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 helps a lot with MEV. But it's still going to exist post merge, and it's probably going to be with us for 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 a while. But I think that we can get to a point where we eliminate most of it at, at some point in time. But it's definitely like a I guess like a, a, a research effort that happens in parallel to to all the eighth two stuff exactly and having the uh incentive not to do to seek this mev having a slashing in effect is definitely going to be a deterrent as well um mm -hmm. so so are you worried at all that anything critical could go wrong when this merge of ethereum happens to eth 2.0 yeah, I mean, I think everyone has like a you know that worry at the back of their kind of like head where they're like, okay, we know from a I guess research and perspective, and we've done test nets with this. We know it works. We know that it, that it can be done. We know that it's not something that's technically infeasible, um, and it has been shown to be done. But there are major risks involved, of course. There's the risk that the miners can do something to kind of like screw up the merge because obviously with the merge, we're cutting the miners off, uh, pretty much cutting their, you know, firing them essentially for a lack of a better term, right? So there's the risk of, okay, well, are these miners going to react to us in a really hostile way, especially as we get closer to the merge? Are they going to start doing things that are very selfish, that are destructive to the network? I think there's a low chance of that happening because um, a lot of these miners are actually going to be stakers as well. They, they've been stockpiling ETH for a while. They're already staking too. So if they were to mess with the network, they're essentially messing with their own profitability as well of, of their stake. So I think that's a deterrent. But there are definitely some some mercenaries out there who are like, okay, well, I have all this hardware that's about to become useless. What can I do to maximize the value that I can extract with this hardware right now? And we may see some 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 stuff happen in the MEV kind of like space, especially around um, you know reorgs. But I think again, there's a very low chance. And then you know w w once the merge actually happens and we get to the the merge block and and it goes through. Maybe there's something that that for some reason we overlooked accidentally, and 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 it just doesn't work, uh, and then we have to kind of like coordinate around that. Now, I mean, I'm just giving kind of like the worst case scenarios here. I think it's as I said, a very low chance of any of this happening because there's obviously a lot of research and development being put into this from every core developer. After the Altair upgrade goes live on ETH2, it's pretty much all hands on deck for the merge. Like the all the core developers and researchers aren't going to be working on anything else, um, really. I mean, some of them will be working on other things, but like. Pretty much, you know, the majority of them will be working on the merge, making sure that it goes through smoothly. And I just feel like it's a low chance for anything to go wrong with that much kind of brain power working on it. But there's always the risk, right? I mean, I think a lot of people, uh, not a lot of people, but I think there are some de definitely bigger investors like institutions and things like that that may be holding off, kind of like taking a position within ETH until the merge happens because they may just feel it's way too risky for them. Um, but I don't know. Like I, I haven't spoken to any, my any myself, but I've been hearing this from different kinds of people. So it I think that a successful merge will lead to a very um, big de-risking event for Ethereum as well, because that's that's really it. Like after that, we have other upgrades like sharding and and statelessness and stuff like that. But they're not going to be uh, anywhere. Like they're never going to be risky. I mean, if something goes wrong with sharding, it's fine. It doesn't really break the whole network or anything like that. Um, whereas with the, the merge, there's a possibility that 
you know, worst case scenario, we have to kind of like go back to proof of work and coordinating miners to get to get the chain up and running again. It's just it's pretty crazy when you think about it. So I, I think it's going to be OK, but always good to be prepared for and just think about like the worst case scenarios. Yeah, very interesting. You say that maybe one of these miners that has millions of dollars invested in equipment that's about to become obsolete. Will they try to take revenge against the chain in, in some sort of maybe it's an MEV type attack or, or something like that? But yeah, very interesting thoughts there. Um, so, so what has you most excited about this Ethereum merge or Ethereum in general in the upcoming months? Uh, sorry, besides the merge, what has you most mm -hmm. excited? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, I think the layer two space, I've been talking about it a lot over the last few months, especially as it's ramped up in terms of rollout and kind of like more teams getting their products to mainnet. I think we've only scratched the surface. We're already at billions of dollars worth of value locked in these kind of things. It was really awesome to see how quickly Arbitrum got adoption because they're the first um, uh, generalized kind of uh, layer two platform without a whitelist. Like Optimism was live for a while, but they still have a whitelisting process. Uh, but they've also got some major upgrades coming soon to to make their network like fully kind of like Ethereum uh, compatible to the point where it's Ethereum equivalent. So if your app works on Ethereum layer one, it works on optimistic Ethereum without having to change anything at all. You don't have to change any of the tools you use and nothing. So that's pretty big. But just in general, I think uh, this, yeah, the layer two scaling ecosystem of ethereum is in its golden era right now there has never been a better time to be you know uh, paying attention to it getting involved with it building the layer 2 ecosystem out and and scaling in general it's not just layer 2 it's just scaling ethereum um generally sharding falls into this and stuff like that um so that's that's what i'm uh, most excited for because obviously the high gas fees are, are, are making it so ethereum can't capture the new users coming in now which is kind of sad because these new users got maybe going to other networks or kind of getting a really bad taste in their mouth about ethereum which i you know breaks my heart to see since i you know i i i like Ethereum so much and want people to experience it, but you can't be expected that these people can't be expected to pay $50 for a Uniswap trade. It's just not going to, not going to be sustainable. So I'm really glad to see these layer two solutions just online when we, when we kind of need them. I mean, we've needed them for about a year now, but better late than, than never. And you know, it took a long time to get here as well. Layer two has been a research, pro open research problem. It still is an open research problem, but it has been for, for quite a while. But we finally got to a point where we're like, okay, well, you know, this roll-up technology that we have is really awesome. It, it works really well. It may not be the end state of scaling, but it, it works um, so well. And uh, zero knowledge tech is, is magic. Like we can use this to do all these sorts of stuff. And it's just, it's it's really awesome to see it all come together finally. Uh, as someone who's been covering this space for a long time, uh, layer two has always been there. Everyone always talked about it, but I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that there wasn't a pressing need up until about the last year or so since DeFi summer kind of started last year because the gas fees were, were always really low. It was like between one and five guay was, was like the norm back then. And that was very, very low. Uh, and and that was like affordable for, pe for people. But it's when we got to the 50, 100, 200 guay level, people were like, well, I mean, this is ridiculous, like, especially new people. Because there's a lot of old people who may have made a lot of money from ETH and they don't pa mind paying the fees. Because if you bought like one ETH for $100, um, uh, you're just like, you, you always have like, for some reason in, in your head, one ETH is always $100. It doesn't matter if it's 3000 today, you kind of look at it in that way. But a lot of new people who are coming into the ecosystem don't have that. They're buying ETH for the first time and they'll be like, well, this is ridiculous. Like having to pay these fees, uh, what's the point? I'm going to go do something else. So um, these layer two networks are allowing people to do what we do at layer one while experiencing the security and decentralization of Ethereum, but and, and also um, experiencing those low fees is is what I'm yeah most excited about besides kind of like the merge. Yeah. Yeah, and we are truly in a golden era for scaling solutions being developed here. And yeah, no one wants to pay these high gas fees. It, it, and it mm -hmm. is a shame 
that users are moving to other chains just to, to get low gas fees and all the innovation happening on Ethereum, uh, they're missing out on. So yeah, it's exciting to see uh, when they sort of recapture that audience back. Mm -hmm. Okay, so so in your opinion, what is the best way to stake your ETH if you have less than 32 Ethereum? So right now, if you have less than 32, obviously Rocket Pool isn't live yet, as I, as I mentioned. So I would say the next best thing is probably Lido, uh, because Lido gives you that, um, you know, STETH token, that the derivative token, and they also kind of like split it up among different staking service providers. So it doesn't just go to one, they at least split it up. Um, so that's, I, I would say that that's probably better than staking on a, on a centralized exchange, but I think the risk is a little bit higher because with the derivative token, it can actually lose its, not lose its peg, but it can actually, dr uh, dr uh, drift away from, from ETH. So you can actually end up losing. And this actually happened recently where uh, a large whale took out a lot of ETH from the curve pool and the people holding ST ETH were kind of like, would it will take a loss until the pool rebalances itself again so um and i think lido had a reaction to that they did something with it but there is there is additional risk there so i would say that i still think lido in terms of like keeping the network at least somewhat you know more decentralized than it would be staking with an actual exchange um that's probably your best bet and you also get that derivative token that you can use within DeFi, which is really cool as well i think um but there are obviously additional risks and, and kind of like security concerns there um but if you're just someone who literally doesn't want to do anything like that you don't want to do DeFi. you don't care about doing on-chain things you literally just want to buy eth and stake it then a centralized exchange or one of these centralized staking providers is is probably going to be your your best bet um even though it's centralized if you really don't care about the extra benefits you get from going through something like lido and not saying lido is decentralized but i would say that like it's it's a bit better than just like staking with one provider and giving them more kind of power because it splits it up across the the providers but I mean, they're pretty close in terms of like, you know, in how centralized they are. Uh, but yeah, it, there's just the different risk profiles there as well. So, um, you know, and, and not all exchanges are created equal either. Like, for example, I would consider Coinbase uh, to be much more trustworthy than Binance just because Coinbase is fully regulated within the US. Binance, no one really knows kind of like where they're regulated or anything like that. Exactly. Yeah, a lot of risk to weigh there. Uh, so, so in your opinion, what is the best way to earn interest on ETH if you don't want to lock up your tokens at all until the merge? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's a few different opportunities within DeFi. Uh, so it's funny because you can do a lot of different things within DeFi with your ETH, but it depends, again, on your risk kind of profile here. For example, you can basically put your ETH into Maker or Liquidy or whatever uh, or Aave borrow stable coins against it and then go do some yield farming with stable coins but you're getting you're you're, you're taking on so much risk because you're taking on uh the, you know they make a risk taking on peg risk for die if you borrow die then you're taking on risk of putting it into another smart contract to earn yield on it say that's yearn or something like that so there's a lot of compounding risk there but will generally you know give you some decent returns depending on the market too because stablecoin uh returns are dependent on how volatile the market is like if the market's going up uh you know there's more demand to borrow funds for people to go, kind of go leverage long on on um different currencies and stuff like that so you'll get a higher yield there and it depends on token incentives too it's very variable as well like it might say okay well you'll get 10 percent apy or 20 percent apy but then uh the market will go quiet and suddenly you're earning like two to three percent or something like that so there's that to consider uh, then you can just do straight ETH kind of like things like you can put your ETH into um, I think Alpha Finance has a product around this as well, which kind of like automates this. And there's a bunch of other things out there. I mean, you can kind of put ETH into a liquidity pool, but then you have impermanent loss to, to think about as well. This is what I mean when I was saying earlier about 
just staking ETH is like the best kind of risk re reward model right now for for earning a you know an, a return on your ETH. Uh, I, you know, as much as I love DeFi, it's just it's very it's much riskier than than staking, and it it's also much more variable in terms of re returns. So, uh, yeah, I mean that's what I would that's what I would do if I was kind of like uh, wanting to earn a return on my ETH. I would, I mean, generally I would probably just uh, kind of borrow stable coins, but there's a liquidation risk there, of course, and you have to be careful with that. But usually when the market gets hot, the stable coin yields are pretty good uh, at the end of the day. So Anthony dropping some free alpha for the users there. Very, very cool stuff. <laughs> and, and I love the fact that you're risk conscious on everything that you say as well. And, and it does seem like all roads do lead to just staking ETH, right? So, mm -hmm. uh, Last but not least, do you have any predictions when the merge will actually happen? Yeah, so um, there has been that kind of like window thrown around of Q1 2022, right? That's that's kind of like uh, been spoken about a bit. I don't think there's any kind of like hard kind of like dates. So it was even like even that window seems a bit pretty loose at this point. I would say that I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if we saw it in Q2 instead of Q1, just because there might be unforeseen kind of like I guess um, uh, problems with the the merge or maybe the developers and researchers researchers don't feel confident enough with it, with um, going forward with it just yet. Uh, but I wouldn't expect to see it this year. Definitely not. Uh, Q1 I would probably give like a 50 50. It's a coin toss. Q2 I would say is you know very high high percent chance of it. If it going live there um but it's it's, it's hard to tell because because as i said like we still have got the altair upgrade happening on eth2 they want to kind of like get that out of the way and then everyone will be focusing on the merge then it'll come into like real clear vision like you know what the eta is for it but for anyone who's followed ethereum development for quite a while whether it be um the core protocol or kind of like the layer two stuff we're really bad at giving dates <laughs> very bad at giving dates <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. It's really tough to estimate this kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, it's, it's great insights just to hear hear an insider's take, basically. So Q1, Q2, uh, keep it loose around those dates. And so, so Anthony, how, how can people follow you to learn more about all the stuff you're working on? Yeah, I mean, they can just go to my Twitter. I have links to pretty much everything on there. So um, their Twitter's at yeah, S-A-S-S-A-L-0-X. Um, as you mentioned at the start, I do a daily kind of like YouTube video and newsletter as part of Daily Gway. With Ethub, I do a weekly newsletter and weekly podcast. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, I do a lot of tweeting as well. So yeah, if you do follow me on there, be warned, I do a lot of tweeting. <laughs> Absolutely, we'll be sure to check you out over on Twitter. And thank you so much for joining us today. Everyone, this is Anthony Sasano, and check out our previous episodes of Staking Mondays available on our YouTube channel and Spotify. Everyone, please like and subscribe to our channel. Smash that like button here. As always, everyone, happy staking. Take care. See you, Anthony. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Cheers.